You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. We do keep on filling out those cards, uh, but now's the time we're going to turn to to read our scripture passage for today. So would you take out your Bibles? If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hands and one of the welcome team can can deposit one of the blue Bibles into your hand. And once you've got one of those blue Bibles, would you turn up Ecclesiastes chapter 5? That's on page 673 of the Church Blue Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 on page 673 of the Church Bibles. Listen to the word of the Lord. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. And you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God... Be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the field. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they do depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, When God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. 
They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow, who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they have gone? Thanks, Ralph, and good afternoon, everyone. Really good to be with you, and a real privilege to take you through this next part in our series in Ecclesiastes. Do keep the passage open. It's covering um, a large chunk and, and we're going to be tracking um, through both chapters over the course of our time together. Why don't I pray to begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come before you, knowing that you are a God who has drawn close to us in the Lord Jesus. You are a God who understands the circumstance of the life that we live, the week that we've had, and the week that we're going into. You are a God who is not far and distant, but one who speaks to us today as your word is opened and applied to our hearts and lives by your spirit who is within us. And so we come before you this afternoon with every expectation as your word is opened that you will speak to us. We pray that you would bring good challenge where we need to hear it and good comfort to our hearts, where we need to hear that too. Amen. Um, I, was, I was intrigued to hear this week about some research that said that most Americans feel more unsafe today than ever before. And yet the research was saying that crime has peaked in America in the 1990s. I was intrigued in terms of us here in the UK that many of us actually feel more overwhelmed, more busy, more oppressed by things to do than ever before, and yet for most of us, we are actually doing less in our diaries than we did pre-COVID. 
You see, whether it's danger out there in the world or whether it's a sense of threat within us, we are well aware that we live in a time where we perceive and feel under constant threat, that we feel constantly vulnerable. And our passage today puts its finger on three key vulnerabilities that all of us face, and it will offer us at the end what I think is actually quite a surprising solution. Um, I've titled these vulnerabilities under three questions, and the first one's this, uh, what if God is angry with you? Now, the weird thing about Ecclesiastes is that it exists at all. You see, Ecclesiastes invites us over 12 chapters from the teaching of a notable preacher named Quaheleth, who's going to share with us over the course of these 12 chapters his social experiment, which can be defined as how do you find true happiness without being in a relationship with the God of the Bible? And it's, it's here the book of Ecclesiastes, right in the very middle of your Bibles, nestled between Proverbs and Song of Songs. It's a curious book, isn't it? I wonder if you found that over the last few weeks as we've been going through it. And it gets me curious to ask the question, what what does Quaheleth really think about religion? What is the role of belief in a divine being in his theory of how the world works. I was reminded by um, Carl Sagan, uh, the scientist and writer, his conclusion to the meaning of life. Um, Sagan said this, the hard truth seems to be this, we live in a vast and awesome universe in which daily suns are made and worlds destroyed, where humanity clings to an obscure clod of rock, The significance of our lives and our fragile realm derives from our own wisdom and courage. We are the custodians of life's meaning. We would prefer it to be otherwise, of course, but there is no compelling evidence for a cosmic parent who will care for us and save us from ourselves. It is up to us. Now, for Sagan, his point is that we long for a cosmic parent, but in his understanding of the world, there isn't one, and so it's all down to us. The quest for survival and happiness, according to Sagan, is all down to us. And I think Quaheleth in Ecclesiastes would partly agree. I think Quaheleth would say, look, certainly we make meaning and it's really all down to us. It's all down to our own wisdom and courage. But I think Quaheleth in Ecclesiastes would actually say there is, there actually is a cosmic parent. There is a God. It's just he is a very angry one. You see, Quaheleth's framework for understanding the world includes a creator, but not a creator to be loved, but instead one to be feared. 
Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 5. It references the fact that this book of Ecclesiastes was likely to have been written as a university course for educated students who were kind of taking kind of a life skills and philosophy 101 module. And the caution that Koheleth gives to the student is be really, really careful when you go to the temple because there is a God, but he is as mad as hell and he is looking at you. And therefore, Koheleth says, look at me at verse 2, don't have the arrogance to babble on because God is very far from you and therefore you need to be very concise and very clear if you're going to speak to him. The distance is so big. Look at me at verses 4 to 7. Koheleth says, don't break promises to this God, because if you do, his anger will destroy your hard work. Now, I think the reality is there is some wisdom here, isn't there? There is some wisdom in being very reverent to who God is. There is some wisdom in not being a fool before God, not telling lies to him. There is wisdom in not babbling rubbish before him. There is some wisdom there. But it is possible to say wise things and yet have an unhealthy heart or a cold heart towards God. Uh, look, here are some indications that the root of Koheleth's wisdom just isn't quite right, is a little bit wonky. Look with me at verse 7. His point in verse 7 is don't dream before God. That is, don't talk about your thoughts and your feelings and your hopes and your, your, your aspirations and your worries. And don't use many words because that will only congest his time and he is very, very busy. Instead, what Quaheleth says is fear God, meaning live before God as if he could destroy your life at any moment, squash you like an ant. Now, I want you to note here a nuance, because this is quite different understanding of fear from other parts of the Bible. So, for example, you'll hear a you know, famous verse like Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What that word fear is used as in this type of way is to say, have a sense of awe, of great respect or great reverence to God so much that your engagement with God should switch on all of your emotions like the lights of a Christmas tree. That is typically how fear of the Lord is used um, throughout Scripture. But in this particular passage in Ecclesiastes, I don't think it means that. I think fear here means simply to be reverently terrified. Just as you would be reverently terrified if Godzilla was in front of you, ready to crush you like an ant. And here's the thing. If God does terrify you, even though you know you should love him, 
If God for you, in your heart of hearts, is someone that you perceive is fundamentally angry with you, even though you know that you ought to relate to him like a father who is kind, the result will be that you will manage your terror by turning your life into a contest, a contest of of scales to do more good things than bad things. That's how you will manage your terror. I remember talking to a Christian many years ago who had... um, He'd just left his wife. And the reason he'd left his wife is he had been having an affair with another woman. And we were talking about his decision-making, about why he did that and how he was relating that to his, his faith and his, his beliefs. And he said this, look, he said, look, I think we need to get away from the idea that we have a personal relationship with God. He said, no, what we need to do instead is we need to just have an idea of God where it's just all about obedience. He said, we just need an idea of God where all God wants is to be obeyed. Why? Because if all God wants is obedience, then I can rig the system. I can hack the scales. I can make sure that I do so many good things over here and bank it that actually it means that God won't really care about the bad stuff that I do. He won't really care about the affair because look at my charity work. He won't care about the affair because look at the, the, the commitment I give to church or, or the seriousness with which I take other aspects of my faith. He will overlook this if I just do enough of that. If it's just about obedience, then really it's, it's just a question of maths. It's just a question of business. It's just a question of probability. You see, ironically, if you are absolutely terrified of God, it will lead you to seeking to manipulate him in order to protect your life and the things that you really care about. I'm mindful of um, Harper Lee's famous book, To Kill a Mockingbird, set in Alabama in the 1930s, where Lee, in the book, describes this group of very respectable, very reverent, church-going ladies who meet together for gospel generosity to raise money for poor children in Africa, because that is the Christian thing to do whilst all the while participating in horrendous racial discrimination in their own town. Lee's pointing out the hypocrisy, but that's exactly what you have if your idea of God is purely he is terrifying. And so long as I've got more on this side of the scales than I have on this, he'll let me me go fine. But the other problem with being terrified with God, if that is your view of God, is that actually it's very difficult for you to be self-aware. And actually, it's very difficult because you're going to present yourself with a very religious image. It's very difficult for your friends to call you out or challenge you. 
But there are some telltale signs drawn from this passage to help you discern whether you're in danger of just realizing, oh my goodness, my view of God is that he is simply terrifying and nothing up. Uh, Evidence number one, you have a very limited prayer life. That's kind of the idea in in verse two. Keep your prayers very short. Don't spend time with him as you would a good friend. No, no, keep your prayers short. Just keep them arrow prayers and just keep them focused on the things that you really need God to do for you today, this week. I wonder if that's reflect. I mean, this goes straight to my heart. Does it go to yours? Number two, be more concerned about the spiritual health of others than yourself. It's by implication in the passage here. He's talking about having an attitude that's appropriate in going to the temple. But Quaheleth only ever talks about you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. He never points the finger to himself in humble repentance. Number three, Attention to God is a strategy to either procure or protect what you really want in life. Look with me at verse 6. The great fear that Quaheleth has, the great engine of motivation for obedience, is quite simply, if you don't do it, God is going to take away the work of your hands. That means he's going to take away the things that you have worked really hard to achieve and protect. That's why you should obey, according to Quaheleth. Does this strike a chord? Because if it is, there's a moment here that we need to stand back in our own hearts and go, wow, do I need to re-examine my own understanding of who God is? Well, come with me to our, our second vulnerability. The question is this, what if those you trust betray you? No one ever said reading the Bible was easy, but there are clues that the writers often leave to help us understand what we should focus on. I mean, this is a very long two chapters, isn't there? And there's so much that we could talk about. How do we know in this very short amount of time what we should focus on? What is the highlighter pen? What is the kind of circle, the text, and the arrow that the Old Testament writers are really wanting us to point to? Well, actually, there are a couple of techniques, and one of them, I think, is in this passage... And when you find it, it's like cracking open a coconut. Let me introduce you to what scholars call a chiasm. A chiasm is an ancient literary device to point out the big idea of a passage amongst similar related thoughts. It's a bit like peeling off layers of the onion in order to get to the core. And and the way it kind of works is that you have different parts paired together, on the outside, then the different parts paired together on the inside, and so forth, until whatever is in the middle, whatever is in the very center, is the key thing that you need to pay attention to. So in the outer layer of our passage is this second vulnerability. What if those you trust betray you? What if those things that you have put your hope in let you down? Well, look with me for two examples of this. First in verses 13 to 14 of chapter 5. The summary here in verses 13 to 14 is all sorts of things might let you down. Your job might let you down. Your savings might let you down. Uh, The authorities 
that are over you, police, judges, might let you down. But it's also making the point that you should, you should really worry about the fact, I guess, us here in the 21st century, that you and I are only one pandemic, one banking crisis, one failure to read the small print away from financial calamity or career disaster. The parallel sentiment is, look with me at chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. And what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. Meaning, we all know that this world is unstable. We all know that the strong will devour the weak, the greedy will always seek self-interest, that heroes will let us down eventually. And Quaheleth is making the point that you are not smart enough and you do not have enough resources to utterly protect yourself from being let down by those things or those people that you trust. I was reflecting a couple of weeks ago on the conundrum of this with Joel and Florence. And I was reflecting on the fact that as parents, as parents, we would do anything for our children in order to protect them from disappointment or hurt, from having their feelings uh, or, you know, damaged or disappointed. And yet, the one thing that we know in life as parents is our children will go through times when they are vulnerable. They will go through times when they are knocked down. They will go through times where we cannot protect them. And the only thing that we can do is train them to have a resilience so when they encounter those moments, they will bounce back. And how do you do that as a parent? Well, the child has to go through disappointment, discouragement, and hurt. What do you do with that? We live in a world of constant vulnerability and no life hacks. No life hacks can ever change that. Come with me to our third vulnerability. What if your emotions let you down? Now, the next layer of the onion, or the next layer of the chiasm, takes us to the third vulnerability. And it's, it's this. What if your emotions let you down? So we've been thinking of it kind of external things that we might put our trust in. What if within us, our own emotions let us down? Look with me at verse 17 of chapter 5, because I think it sums it up well. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. All their days they eat in darkness. Now, <clears throat> Quaheleth is generalizing here. Um, I love my wife's cooking, and we rarely eat in darkness unless it's movie night. So it's a, it's a generalization. It's a generalization. But the point that he's trying to make here is that there is nothing that you can do to protect yourself from negative emotions coming back coming after you and affecting you. You see, for all of our relaxation apps, for all of our self-calming techniques, you cannot escape negative emotions. And this is paired with chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. 
He says this, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But, this is the key bit, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. Notice how strongly he feels about it. He reserves the word evil to describe this moment when your emotions are not in sync with the life that you have. What exactly is the problem? Well, I think it's a little bit like this. Imagine a situation. Imagine, you know, someone called Jenny or someone called John, if it's you, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> imagine John and Jenny, they, imagine they pass their exams and they work very hard to do it. Imagine they're in the medical profession and they get the hospital of their choice. Wonderful. Imagine they have enough income now in order to breathe just a little bit after so long of just grafting. Imagine they have now been able to buy a, a, a flat or rent a property that they wouldn't be embarrassed for their parents to come to. But imagine they find themselves struggling to get out of bed and wondering if their antidepressants need increasing in strength. What do you do? What do you do when your emotions do not sync with your life? I think it's even worse when you get older, to be honest. Because when you get older, you know that the next salary threshold won't actually make a difference to your happiness. When you get older, you know that you've moved enough times that the buzz of a novelty of starting something afresh grows fainter and fainter every time you do it. So what do you do? What do you do when your emotions aren't in sync? with your life. Well, actually, I think this takes us to Quaheleth's center of the chiasm, at the very heart of what he's trying to say is the solution. Because he's identified the threats of an angry God, external betrayal, emotional instability, and then he provides his answer, and it's right there in chapter 5, verse 20. Do you see it? Chapter 5, verse 20. You curious? Let me read it. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with a gladness of heart. Hold that a moment. What does that mean? It means the key to satisfaction in a world that is always full of threat and danger is keep busy and don't think about it. Keep busy. Don't think about it. That's what he says. When Karl Marx said religion was the opium of the people, he was talking about this. Fear God and keep busy. But of course, for threats two and three, our secular culture has also come to the very same conclusion, hasn't it? Our culture says to us, look, just stay busy. Let, let me put it like this as a question to you. When was the last time you didn't feel exhausted? 
When was the last time you greeted a friend or someone you knew and you didn't, didn't use the words tired or busy? When was the last time you did that? I mean, I can't even remember. When was the last time, when was the last time you used the word content to describe yourself? This is a problem that Christians face. This is a problem that your friends, the world faces. If you're not a Christian here today, I'm so glad you're here, but this is your problem, is it not? The writer, Bayung Chu Han, argues that we live in a distracted and an overachievement culture. And he said people are now both master and slave in one person. He says that actually we've built a world where the ideal, the ideal that we long for is to be really busy doing a job that we love and being very happy, but we cannot achieve that ourselves. We have built a world where just striving to have that happy busyness has made us miserable. He writes this, the exhausted, depressive, achievement subject grinds itself down, so to speak. It is tired, exhausted by itself, and at war with itself. This leads the self to hollow and empty out. It wears itself out in a rat race. It runs against itself. See, Bayong Chu Han challenges Koheleth by saying that distraction through busyness is no longer the path to happiness. It is no longer sufficient. And every single one of us in this room has the scars to prove it, do we not? You cannot be satisfied with your present unless God offers you a radically different future. So then what should we do? It kind of makes me think, doesn't it? When it, what should you do? Where is my kind of, uh, what would Jesus do wristband? Did you ever have that? I'm kind of showing my age on that one. But actually, I think this is a good place to start as we kind of think, what's the application then for us? You see, Jesus models to us how to handle these three vulnerabilities. The first way he models this is look to the cross. Look to the cross. You see, Jesus Christ chose to die on a cross so that all of the things that you've ever done wrong, all of the things that you will ever do wrong, are all paid for. That the anger of God towards your sin, the justice of God is spent all on Jesus so that you are forgiven and that God is no longer angry with you anymore for any wrong things you ever have done or any wrong things that you will do. And this means a few things that we would do well to pay attention to, whether you are not a Christian or you've been a Christian for years. First is this. If you are a believer in Jesus, God is not angry with you. He is really not angry with you. Do you believe that? Number two, he is not up there waiting to punish you when you mess up. If you're a believer, that is not the God of the Bible. 
Thirdly, I need you to know that there is no angry God the Father standing behind lovely, kind Jesus. I think sometimes we think that, don't we? God the Father is a tyrant, he's angry, and he's kind of, let me at him. And Jesus is like, no, 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 calm down, calm down. That, that is not the God of the Bible. There is no angry father being held back by loving, gentle Jesus. And he is not distant. And he loves it when we talk to him about the things that are on our hearts, the things that we're worried about, or our hopes, or our aspirations. He loves it when we spend time with him. He loves it when we open our hearts, even when we are not concise or short. He loves it. The second way that Jesus models to us what to do in the face of these vulnerabilities, I think can be summarized as follow the path. Number two, follow the path. Because we live in a time of life hacks galore, don't we? Where the idea of a life hack is, there's something painful over here, but if you do it right, you can kind of find a way around it. But Jesus models at the cross that the only way, the only way to get to a place where no one will let you down again and where your emotions will always be in sync is by actually going right through the middle of pain. That's the path of the cross. You see, you and I spend all of our time and energy doing everything we can to avoid pain or to distract ourselves from it. And Jesus says, no, actually, follow me. The way of the cross is often right through the middle of it and out the other side. You see, Jesus knew. Jesus knew when he went to Jerusalem that both the authorities that he should have trusted to look after him and his friends who he should have trusted to have been there for him, he knew that both of them would betray him and let him down. And he knew that the path of the cross, in order to get through it to resurrection, meant that he would have to go straight down the middle, straight down the center of some of the most excruciating emotional pain that anyone could ever endure. But he knew that it was the only way to make a path for me and for you to get to the new creation, to get to a better place, to get to full resurrection. Jesus knew he had to go to the cross and punch a hole right through it and ask us to follow. But, but we have to have the courage to follow. We have to follow him through the pain, knowing that the best, the best is yet to come. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia Chronicles, many of you will know, in his final book, The Last Battle, he, he basically looked at what the Bible said about the new creation. And he tried to present it in a way that different aspects of those biblical truths could make sense to our imagination. And he describes this moment at the end of the book when a number of characters, they, they get to the equivalent of, of, of the new creation. And one of the characters called Jewel arrives, and this is what they say. With great joy, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, and though I never knew it till now. The narrator in the book describes in this same moment 
says this. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. You see, what Lewis foresees in the Bible's teaching about eternal life, about the new creation, is that it's going to be a world full of activity and excitement, but without fatigue and without exhaustion. Doesn't your heart long for that? That's what we're talking about here. Another character called Lucy, when she arrives in this great land, she delightedly shouts to the others, have you noticed that no one can feel afraid, even if one wants to? Try it. Because what Lewis is saying is in the new creation, the emotion of fear will be impossible because there is absolutely nothing to fear where the Lord Jesus is taking us. In in short, what Lewis is saying is that the new creation that we have to have in front of us, we have to know this radical new place that the Lord Jesus has made a pathway for us to go to, has no threat outside, no threat inside, and that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, come to me for rest, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden. But to follow Jesus to that wonderful place, you've got to follow the way of the cross. And that means, let me, if I talk practically, it means to go through times in your life when you feel betrayed or let down by others, even within this church. But you don't quit Jesus because you know the best is yet to come. It means for some of you to, rather than spend all of your energy trying to avoid pain or distract yourself through unhelpful things, it is to go straight down the middle of the pain and the fear, even when your emotions aren't working as you would love them to, but you don't quit Jesus because you know the best is yet to come. So church, let me ask you this as we finish. How are you preparing your hearts to travel through the center of times of great vulnerability? How are you preparing your hearts? Who do you meet with on a regular basis who continually points you to the new creation that is to come and tells you, don't quit, don't give up, just keep going? Or do you just meet with people who will indulge you to try and avoid pain and live a life of distraction? Who do you prioritize meeting up with? Where do you prioritize going on a regular basis that strengthens your heart not to quit when life gets hard? I I could talk about connect groups. I could talk about our discipleship groups. I could talk about booking onto the weekend away. Because they're all tools that marathon runners will use in order to get to the very end of the race. But of course, some of you may be thinking, is there an option B? Well, there is an option B. It's really do what you're currently doing. Use all of your energy to keep running from whatever makes you feel afraid. It is keep listening to the world that says, just stay busy and just stay distracted. But if you choose that option, if you do choose to run away from Jesus rather than towards him, 
Well, pay attention to the advice of this world because you will hear it until your dying day. And it will simply say this, run hard. Never stop running. And never look over your shoulder. Is that the life you want? I wonder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, praising you and thanking you that we have one in the Lord Jesus who knows the vulnerabilities that we face every day, who knows the burdens we bear, and doesn't just leave us distant, but came into our world to be one of us, to die on a cross, to reveal to us that God is not angry with those whom the Son has paid for. We have one in the Lord Jesus who offers us a different path, not of exhaustion and continually running from fears, but one which takes us right through the center of fear and pain to a new creation. It is a path that cost him his very life, but led to a resurrection that he shares with us. And Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Father, for those of us who have lived too long as poor runners of the race of life, I pray that we would repent. For those of us who have not taken advantage of the good tools that you've given us to get us through to the end and not quit, we repent. And I pray most of all, when we see the Lord Jesus running the race before us and saying, follow me through death to life, I pray no matter the cost, no matter the pain, we would follow him and say thank you, Jesus. Amen.